Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks and a move. I'm Corey Johnson, and I'm Corey Johnson on October 26th. And I'm Corey Johnson about to do number, episode number 125. You're about to hear it. What are you going to hear? Well, Polaris. Company's got supply chain problems. Who doesn't? But maybe, just maybe, they're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. And an analyst actually accused Lockheed Martin's CEO of running a rudderless ship. His response was really interesting. And big Bitcoin miner Hive Blockchain Technologies joins us, CEO Frank Holmes. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. Never miss another critical event or insight ever with ERA. Customize your company watch list and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And you can listen to The Drill Down regularly on your smart speaker by saying, Hey Alexa, play The Drill Down podcast. You'll hear our latest show. And The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled, technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. Right, I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks in the move, and I'm joined by the beautiful, brilliant Siobhan... Oh, no, wait, Siobhan's gone still. <laughs> Instead, I've got the beautiful, wow. brilliant Isaac Webster, our executive producer, <laughs> joining me with the three most important developments in the world of business today. It was fun having Siobhan here last week. Yeah, you've mentioned that did a few I, did times. I mention that? Did yeah, I, you've did, mentioned did mention that, that, yeah. Uh, <laughs> hi, Siobhan, if you're listening. So let's start with the news here. Wait, we can't Home tell her. We can't tell her. I'm not going to text her. I'm not going <laughs> to mention it on Twitter. Maybe our listeners will bring it up to her. Of course not. So let's get to the news. Home price growth held at a record high in August. That's thanks to co- continued demand from home buyers despite skyrocketing prices. This is according to the S&P CoreLogic Case-Shiller National Home Price Index, of course. But I got to mention, the Case-Shiller Index measures repeat sales data and reports on a two-month delay. And in more recent weeks, the pace of home price gains has slowed. So we'll but see. But uh, inventory is still super low, and that's driving yeah. prices even higher. Now, number two, after three months, nearly three months after Tyson Foods mandated coronavirus vaccines for all of its 120,000 U.S. workers, more than 96% of them are vaccinated. Now, this is com- this according to the company's CEO telling the, re- telling the company today, less than half of Tyson's workforce was um, vaccinated when the company announced on August 3rd that it, re- it would require these vaccines. All right, so now do... Here's what I'm thinking about. Power lines. Okay. I was thinking about this with the storms. Uh, there's a nor'easter hitting the East Coast. We have these mm-hmm. huge rainstorms in Northern California, uh, now hitting Portland and, and and where you are in Los Angeles. What does this mean for, for damage to power lines? And are those workers vaccinated if they're federal workers? I, I don't know what this is going to mean for vaccine mandates across other industries. And, and is it going to really affect the ability to fix things when things break in the world right now? We'll see. There's lots of But at least broken. we can get chicken. Yeah. Well, we got to eat, right? Now, let's move on to China. Chinese developer Modern Land has failed to repay a $250 million US dollar bond. We're not talking about Evergrande. We're talking about Modern Land. Now, the green, this green real estate company had previously sought to extend the bond's October 25th due date. 
uh, that did not work out. Many highly indebted Chinese developers that have outstanding U.S. dollar bonds are struggling to adapt to an era of tighter credit and falling home sales. A steep sell-off in the market for Chinese junk bonds has made it impossible for some some of these real estate companies to refinance their maturing debt by issuing new dollar bonds. Corey, what stocks you're drilling down on today? Let's start with my old friend Polaris. Polaris, Polaris trades under PII, shares tumble today. But they've risen 27% in a year still, but that's below market. the market. Yeah, yeah. 25% for the market. Uh, what, you, when you go hunting, you uh, which ATV? <laughs> are you a Polaris guy? Um, I'm familiar with Polaris products. I mean, I grew up in Missouri. The ATVs, um, snowmobiles, Indian motorcycles, big company, $7 billion in sales in 2020. Um, if you haven't been to the Polaris Experience Center in Russo, Minnesota, you have Pretty cool. Lived. It's a top secret facility. Can't bring your cell phone. No kids under the age of six. You can't even bring the family right now. Right. But um, Minnesota is a big place. Uh, Russo, Minnesota, uh, Minnesota is almost six hours north of Minneapolis. Oh, so th- wow. Yeah, they get some snow. Is that like Boundary Waters area? Where? Wow. It's up near uh, Grand Rapids is a town way up there. Okay. Believe it or not, I know there's Grand Rapids, Michigan. There's a Grand Rapids... Minnesota, there's a, you know, it's kind of up in the, in the Iron Range, Hibbing, and so on up there. In any case, uh, Polaris, uh, based in the suburbs of um, Minneapolis uh, itself, I think they're in Eden, as I recall. Um, I was short the stock once upon a time, full disclosure, it was back in 2007, 2000, I think it finally blew up in 2008. Um, and so I would never believe a word these guys say, even though it's totally different management. And I went to the conference call, now I totally believe them after listening to what they had to say, because their inventories were just low. So they reported third quarter. Third quarter uh, sales and adjusted sales of about $2 billion. But North American retail sales were fell 24% in the quarter because they didn't have enough stuff to sell. They said that their, their retailers who usually have three months of inventory on hand or so have one month of inventory on hand. They cannot build the stuff fast enough, literally. Wow. They can't fill their supply chain uh, and because they can't because their supply chain isn't full. And it's a lot worse than what they said in July. You mentioned the stock sell-off um, today, and it's because this was a surprise. They, they said they had supply problems in July, but it's gotten worse. But I thought I, I heard just a little hint that maybe things, as bad as they are, as sideways as things are moving right now, as much as they are part of other supply chains, that maybe they're starting to get hints that the broader supply chain actually might get their suppliers at least might outperform the broader supply chain and maybe things are getting a little bit better. You listen, tell me what you hear from CEO Mike Spurzen. That's how he pronounced his last name. Michael Spurzen, Mike Spurzen, CEO of Polaris. At this point, they're kind of just moving sideways now. I will tell you that our team uh, is doing great work to make sure that we get our disproportionate share of whether that's trucking or prioritization at the ports. Um, and then we have a handful of what we call our mega suppliers, the suppliers that can have the biggest impact on us. And we're managing that on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, when, when we see improvements in one, we tend to see something happen with another. And those are just the realities of the things we're working through right now. Um, the good news is we're hearing from suppliers that things should start to get better. Uh, but that's within the context of the broader supply chain environment. So, you know, we're taking that with bated breath and we'll see how that goes. You know, I think we're poised to, to react as soon as the supply chain starts to see more flexibility. I I heard something possibly, I don't know, what did you hear in that? 
I mean, he sounds optimistic. It's like this is a storm that they are going to weather. Maybe what we just heard is Minnesota nice. (laughs) Doesn't mean a damn word of it, but it was Minnesota nice. Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at Lockheed Martin. Lockheed Martin trades under LMT. Shares dropped around 12% today, and they've fallen 10% in a year. Yeah, that's bad. Uh, The company reported earnings for third quarter revenue of $16 billion, down 3%. Down's not good. Um, Their their sales um, guidance going forward is going to be just a little bit less. They were at, what do call it, $6.8 billion uh, midline guidance for the next year. Now they're saying it's, I'm sorry, 67.8. Now they're saying it's going to be 67 billion. So kind of coming off their their guidance numbers, um, which would, you know, frankly, would just reflect the, the loss of the below what their guidance had been of today's numbers. But they did say they're reviewing their five-year plan targets. They're talking a lot about cash flow, not about growth. They're talking about trying to keep some of the military programs that they have. Um, there was an analyst from Merrill Lynch who I, I was kind of shocked. He he basically, this is Ron Epstein. He actually asked the CEO, he's like, you know, this was a growth story. Now it's a cash flow story. This seems like a rudderless ship. Or he kind of copped it a little bit. Oh, people are saying it's a rudderless ship. I thought that it took onions to tell the CEO of a company that he was running a rudderless ship. Um, and the answer was really interesting. The CEO is a youngish guy named Jim Taslett. And he'd come from American Tower. He knows technology. American Tower, the builder of cell phone towers. Um, and he talked about the long-term change in what Lockheed Martin used to do since World War II. We actually cited World War II in this conference call saying, we used to make programs. We used to make stuff and, and sell the stuff to the military. Now we're thinking about a mission-oriented paradigm. And that's different than what we've been doing since World War II. Uh, here is uh, what Jim Taslett had to say when he was asked, are you running a rudderless ship? Why aren't you just selling this stuff like you used to do? And he described a modern day Lockheed Martin. But I am getting, uh, I'd like to think, tremendous traction with senior government officials in the U.S. and elsewhere that understand that while our industry and their purchase of our products and services over the years has been effective, it's largely effective in the uh, physical world, if you will, the Newtonian world. We're really good at technologies like hypersonics, space travel, uh, uh, precision weapons, et cetera. Th- those, are, those are in the Newtonian world. We're really good at that as an industry, and our customer knows how to buy that stuff. What we're not as good at as we need to be in the defense industry is merging that excellence in the physical world that we can bring to national defense, but merging that with the developments, the accelerated developments in the digital world by companies that have specialized in things like 5G and AI and distributed computing and networking, because if we merge those two things together in the ways that we're forecasting and that we're building technology roadmaps to do, we will increase the effectiveness of our current set of platforms in a faster and more robust way than can be done just using the physical attributes and the physical um, world technologies. We're going to keep doing all that, but we can actually turn on an afterburner for mission capability for our customers by by accelerating those digital technologies into our space, and that is our strategy. So he does have a strategy. It's not rudderless. I thought that was fascinating 
this notion of a Newtonian world for a Lockheed Martin of old and a more digital world in a Lockheed Martin of new, if you will. And he didn't say digital transformation once. I was about to say it for him. <laughs> <laughs> Corey, what's your next drill down? A little company called Facebook, full disclosure. There are a few shares of Facebook in the uh, Johnson family 401k. Um, we also own shares of Facebook in our household, but we are not on Facebook. We deleted our Facebook accounts um, over a year ago. Uh, Facebook shares. That's Facebook. some hypocritical stuff, really? Yeah. So you it believe it enough is. to own the stock? I believe we own it. I mean, I think, you know, it's in a lot of our... It's in a lot of different piles, but Facebook uh, trades are FB shares fell today, but they are higher by, oh, well, just 13% over the last 12 months. So yeah, let's talk about all this Facebook news. Oh, My 13%. God. So all I'm saying is I'm a lousy investor. Yes. Uh, look, uh, the reason, the reason I, I, I'm not, I don't get investment advice I, and you wouldn't follow my investment advice if you could get it. Um, for example, we mentioned that Facebook has vastly underperformed the market, uh, mm -hmm. but Facebook to me has always been a free cash flow story. And while they reported earnings that uh, were seen as a disappointment on Wall Street, the guidance was a disappointment on Wall Street, the stock was down uh, in after hours trading after they announced the numbers, although it was, I think it was up a little bit, kind of break. You said it was falling today, and we'll see. Um, but not, not a big move in the stock today, nonetheless. Uh, and they announced a, a share buyback, which might be helping the stock. Who cares about the stock? I always say the business is growing like crazy. $29 billion in revenue, so up 35% over last year's record year record third quarter, operating profits up 30% to 11 or $10.4 billion, um, operating margins of 36%, which while well, that's less than last year, it's 36% operating margin. That's unbelievable. Um, daily active users, just when you thought everyone was on Facebook, including Isaac and his family, or on Instagram or on WhatsApp, uh, well, in fact, daily active users were up 6%. So were monthly active users. So, um, the real story, though, was the headwinds from the changes in Apple's iOS 14 that don't allow the targeting and tracking of users across lots of different apps. That really hits Facebook where it lives, which is selling advertising across not just Facebook properties, but elsewhere, and understanding who those customers are and telling advertisers who the customer is, who they're targeting, and how they can target them. Um, Facebook thinks that they can rebuild those capabilities and somehow work around that. I don't know that they can. Your face and faith in Facebook technologists, you'll want to believe that. And maybe the bigger question is, if you can't target the the viewers of an ad across lots of different apps and lots of different devices, do you want to advertise with Facebook at all? Here is a Chief Operating Officer Cheryl Sandberg. I think it's hard to sit here and decide exactly where we're going to end up at the all of this. It is going to be a multi-year effort. We've definitely seen a hit already, and we're definitely focused on tools to help advertisers. We think we have opportunities to strengthen targeting ourselves, both by the work we do ourselves and as part of industry consortiums. You're right in your question in that advertisers have to make a choice of where they advertise. So the question for us is how good can our targeting be compared to others? I think our targeting can suffer compared to others like Apple who have the direct data themselves. But I think our targeting still remains, I think, in very, in very uh, many ways, very good for advertisers. When you compare us on ROI, we've always performed well. We still do. 
even though we've taken a hit and we're focused on continuing to do that for businesses. I think she took a shot at Apple there. It seemed like that. I think she was saying, well, now Apple can just keep all this private information for themselves when Apple has very specifically said they also will not track um, users across different devices to, to sell ads. So that, I don't know. That, that did sound like she was taking a little shot at Tim Cook and the folks, the fine folks in Cupertino, just down the road from Facebook's uh, Mountain View headquarters. But this is one to watch. And um, it's, you know, it's, it's interesting to, to really see what advertising will look like since it's changed so much in the last 15 years. All right, well, coming up next, we've got a really interesting conversation with a giant Bitcoin miner. High of blockchain technologies is publicly traded. CEO Frank Holmes likes to make the case that it's almost like a Bitcoin ETF. Do you buy it? We'll hear from Frank Holmes in just a moment, but first. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com, to learn more. All right, welcome back to the Drill Down Podcast. We are joined right now by the CEO of Hive. Frank Holmes joins us right now from, where are you, Frank? Are you in Texas? Are you in I'm Canada? in San Antonio, Texas, spur country. Okay. Uh, and yet you are Canadian, I think, from your accent. I'm a Texcan. Y'all come back, eh? <laughs> I've, been, I've been here for 30 years, uh, and I'm a dual citizen American-Canadian. So um, what is Hive? So the journey of me creating Hive is I had launched this Jets ETF, the first, uh, it's a quant-based uh, ETF for the airlines industry, and I was trying to launch one in Bitcoin. And I realized quickly, four and a half years ago, the SEC, their paranoia, rightfully so, of anti-money laundering laws and KYC, it just wasn't going to happen. So I went up to Canada, same thing. I drove down a cul-de-sac. It just wasn't going to go anywhere. I had this knowledge it was, and, and uh, friends of mine called me and said, some of these crazy young kids got this idea of crypto mining. And I said, really? Well, I'd be interested in that. And I'll, re- I'll put up 5 million to get that started. Uh, and then institutional money came right behind it of uh, 25 million. And then it went public and 200 million. So it became the first crypto mining company to ever go public. I did it because when you validate a transaction every 10 minutes, you get a new Bitcoin. And that Bitcoin is a Genesis or a Virgin coin. So it's never been in cyberspace. I don't have any AML risks or issues and I hold it. So today, why would you go buy the ETF trading at 62,000? You buy Hive and we produce it at 6,000. Well, and we should uh, define uh, HODL, HODL, whatever, um, is the crypto phrase for hold on for dear life, which is never sell, um, which, is a, which is a theme in the world of crypto. It is on the diehard uh, Bitcoin, I call them the fanatics. You know, they, they remind me a lot of, uh, of gold bugs. They both come from, they you know, both that's read. really right. That's, that's a good comparison because it is a little, I, you know, I'll just say it. it was, you know, I worked at Ripple for a while. I mentioned it to you before, and uh, there are XRP heads out there. And they are, some of them are absolutely so obsessive um, uh, and maximalist around XRP. There are maximalists around Bitcoin. And you're right, there are maximalists around gold. Very much, and they love the history. It's like reading the Pentateuch, you know, the, and they get stuck in Leviticus 485th law. Like they really are, uh, the governments are bad, they're printing all this money, and, and they, 
But the difference for me has been lawyers. So two lawyers go to the same law school, one comes out and one's a de defense lawyer. They're the ones that buy gold. They're trying to preserve their wealth from, from currency debasement, not crypto. They're litigators. They're out there for the big ka-ching. I got that $50 million lawsuit. Uh, and, and that is very much the difference I see, but they all come from reading the same history book of money printing. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, uh, that's an interesting aspect of it too. And yes, you uh, congratulations on the first reference to Leviticus on this podcast here, 100, low 120 <laughs> some episodes in, hopefully the last of the nuttiest book in the Bible. I mean, you know, <laughs> Revelations is up there too, I guess. So, um, uh, so, so you guys mine crypto. You, specifically, you mine only Bitcoin. Is that right? No, we we're the first to mine Ethereum and Bitcoin, okay. and we only use hydroelectricity or geothermal in Iceland. Uh, we're, we're in the northern Sweden, a hundred miles south of the Arctic Circle, in a town that was basically a NATO military town called Bowden. Uh, and Facebook is only thirty miles away, and they have a, a huge center, data center for all of Europe in that area because it's inexpensive, green energy, uh, and there's near a university. Now, I thought you were selling crypto. I thought that was where the chief source of income for the company. Well, what we did do is that going through that bear, that bear period is that we did trade around it on this volatility. Uh, it's got an incredible DNA of volatility uh, over any 10 day, 20 day trading. Sure. Uh, and that helped us uh, buy new equipment and weather the storm. But if you want to take a look at what we what we've been doing is that is that we had about twenty five thousand uh, Ethereum that we hodl, and we have um, I think about twelve hundred uh, almost almost thirteen hundred Bitcoin uh, that are that I believe you know as, as I've told people I think they're going to be like Andy Warhol art if if you have the sixty four digit and it's never been in cyberspace. In 10 years from now, it came from green energy. Uh, it, it's, a, it's one of the, its original coin. Uh, it will have a different type of value, just like a print or a stamp will. Um, well, there's a whole NFT thing, which we don't have to get into, but it, it's interesting to me too, that, that there've been so many changes in the, in the way mining is happening in crypto in the last year because of China's crackdown. Give me your view on what's happening there and, and how that's affected your business. Well, the big part is centralization and clearly the Chinese were dominating it. They were mining with coal. Uh, they were over 45% of all the Bitcoin mining. Right. Uh, and it is so good that it's decentralized. The whole concept. Uh, yeah, I would say I was, I was even concerned that maybe the Chinese government at some point would start to have a certain control over Bitcoin uh, as, a, as a network because they could effectively make some changes. I know there's a big, there's great dispute of that, but I, still believe it to be true that it, there was a point in time in which China could have forced a lot of changes into the Bitcoin network um, uh, because, by virtue of the fact that so much mining was being done in China. Absolutely. Some people speculated they'd hire the, go and arrest the five families and put them in jail like they did to Jack Ma and say, we want you to break it, you know, just go through the 50% uh, mining. Uh, uh, but that hasn't happened. But wh wh what's happened here is it's actually come back to America. It's much more decentralized again. Uh, and Texas has been a big recipient. We have in this state lots of stranded electricity that really is not on the grid unless there's some type of a crisis. So it really is much more efficient. And what's interesting is that most of it's natural gas, 
Uh, there's supposedly two gigawatts of uh, wind power, and there's another going to be building two gigawatts of solar energy here, in addition to gas. Uh, so I, I think that the, the whole concept is Texas is very big and positive in the direction of bringing in people from all over the world to do their mining here. Uh, what they find is like some of them are doing, we are doing it in Bowdoin, Sweden, is when everyone turns on their toasters and hair dryers at eight o'clock in the morning, we can shut down in a second from, from 20 megawatts to one and then go back up to 20. It takes a lot more energy and turbines and cranking up. Therefore, it's a much bigger capex to deal with peak periods. So it's good to have during those low periods, crypto mining because it creates, a, 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 uses all that excess energy that they have. So everybody wins in the community. So as you go forward, do you, do you intend to stick just with Bitcoin and Ethereum? Yes, and we've been making investments. We invest in a DeFi company that launched the first, uh, like the, the pro funds that came out this week. They did it in uh, Sweden um, four, six months ago, and it's already uh, half a billion dollars. So we invested in a company like that. We're looking at an NFT company uh, that does film production, and they have all the IP for documentaries. So we, we, we do not want to hire the people we want. We're trying to really run it like a royalty company. And when I say that to you, Corey, it's the revenue per employee is a really key denominating factor. So when you look at Franco Nevada Gold Royalty Company, they have $25 million per employee. Goldman Sachs is a million. A gold mining company might be 600,000. So you have much more efficiency. Hive is running today close to $20 million of revenue per employee. Which speaks to the, the nature of it. What has it been like buying equipment? Uh, you know, there isn't a company we talk to. And in fact, it's surprising how many companies like oil and gas companies and obviously the auto companies and, and the hardware companies unable to get chips, unable to have equipment, the equipment that they want to have uh, in size. Surely that's affecting you guys as well. Absolutely. The big issue is getting it here on time or the collateral infrastructure equipment. Uh, what are the racks you're going to put them in? You have all the chips, but if you can't put them in racks, they sit on the floor. So where are the racks? Or if you're going to do Ethereum mining, and uh, we bought a lot of A40s, which are the best, that's like driving a Bugatti, uh, the A40s. And, and you need a very expensive Dell server to go along with that if you're going to go to high performance computing. So what we see in the future is that we mine Ethereum, we get our capital back, and we're building out high performance computing because we take a look at what Amazon charges for, for HPC, it's just unbelievably expensive. Uh, and we can make a lot of money coming in at uh, one quarter of the price. Uh, so we think that as, as, as the need for gaming, the need for AI is just going to continue to grow, uh, that this business is a great uh, opportunity to build out in. What, what are the growth um, parameters or governors, I should say? What are the things that allow you to grow Obviously, an increase in the price of the underlying asset helps a lot, but what are the other things that kind of govern your growth? And is it is it finding more power? Or are you maxed out there? Or where where is the opportunities for that? I think the biggest scarcity is getting chips. It's interesting because most of these big chip manufacturers were very slow in getting things to a bit main, and you name them all. It was just on failed on time deliveries until China imploded because they were selling but mostly back into China. That's been a big windfall because all of a sudden deliveries are coming. They're slow and delayed, but they are coming, which is really important. 
Uh, and what also is the difficulty failed dramatically means that the difficulty means you get more coins for that same amount of energy you have in ships. Uh, and, and as the difficulty rises, you're getting less coins every 10 minutes. And so with that, what's interesting for me is Ethereum, it never really contracted. And, the, and it really tells me that Ethereum is much more diversified globally than Bitcoin. Uh, and we found out that lots of kids have the A6000 chip for their gaming because they're high playing gamers. Uh, and all of a sudden they turn it off and they're mining for Ethereum. They run up their parents' electrical bill in Europe and they get the $3,000 now almost $4,000 and they go spend that money and they're back into gaming. Uh, so you're, you're seeing now this I know is, what my son is up to in his room. <laughs> check your electrical bill. That's how you'll know first. So I, I, when I look at the number of nodes, it's double for Ethereum network around the world. But one of the things that's really interesting for investors to realize is I go to these conferences like you're at, and I, by the way, I always love your interviews uh, that you Thank do, you. Uh, and and you just have great questions and, and cadence and the whole process. So I, I've, I've always learned from you. Wait till uh, I get to the mean ones, Frank. Yeah, well, you can be that way, which <laughs> makes you a great uh, interviewer. Um, but I, I think what's what's happening here is that a lot of those kids listen to podcasts, and a lot of those kids are gamers, and so they're very cognizant of the GPU. And they've been, if they're good at gaming, they've been rewarded with digital money in that software. So their dopamine connection to winning is is there, and so they're going digital. And so. When I would go to a conference, uh, Vegas or to San Francisco, uh, you didn't pay $13,000 to get into the conference and have 13,000, 15,000 people trying to gate crash. It's like a rock concert. Yeah. And it doesn't matter where they are in the world, Singapore, London, Toronto, New York City, Miami, London, uh, Paris. What's it, that crazy one in New York I went to a few years ago? It was a coin, it was a, not a coin desk. But consensus. Consensus, thank you. Just insane. Insane. With the, with uh, the Lambos revving up around, driving around the block in Manhattan and thousands of people. That was, it was just a, it, the it, it really is, there's nothing like it. There's yeah. just nothing. I mean, I suppose Comic-Con might be like that. I haven't attended, but it's really, a, it's a unique thing. And I think you're right. I think the notion of digital assets come pretty naturally to someone who's been playing Call of Duty or Fortnite or League of Legends and exchanging digital assets or, you know, for things within a game, it's not so foreign. Um, let me ask you, uh, speaking of foreign, uh, let me ask you about your um, your cap table. It's really weird, right? You've, it's, it's not a, it's not atypical for a Canadian company. It is atypical for a NASDAQ-listed company. They have so many warrants and options. Restricted stock units are not unusual. But you've got, and, and then you've got a personal holding through U.S. Global. But explain to me the cap table. You don't have to explain how it works, but why have such a complicated cap table? And is that well, something you want to undo? We, let's go back to the genesis of the story. Yeah. Uh, I was trying to launch an ETF. And it was going nowhere. So this idea of mining the original coin, so that rather than put $5 million into launching a product and all the marketing and legals, I said, I'll put $5 million in this company and I'll go on as the chairman, uh, independent chairman, like I would to go on to one of my trusts. Uh, and that was simply, this was my path. Uh, and what happened there is that there was shares and there was warrants when you, when you did those financings. Uh, and for U.S. Global, it was basically not their Jets product or their GoAU gold product that's out there on the New York Stock Exchange. It became Hive, and Hive was their proxy in the crypto space. Uh, Hive is just a classic. If you look at the other crypto mining companies, 
it's probably the most, it has the highest returns on invested capital, Corey. I'm very proud of this yeah. as a fund manager because when I look at Marathon, they've gone from 10 million shares to 120 million shares outstanding in a year. Riot's gone from 25 million to 125 million. I think we've gone up just under 20%. And so there's been little dilution. So that shows up and we still have the most revenue per share and the highest revenue uh, of all of them. So last quarter, we grossed 38 million and made $18 million. Uh, and we hold uh, a ton of coins. So I, I think I'm trying to run it like I am a money manager. Interesting. Well, it's an interesting company um, and we're glad to have you come on to uh, explain it to us. Frank Holmes is the CEO of Hive. Coming up next, we've got the drill down bite, the one number that tells us a whole lot about Hive. We will have a number that really helps uh, shed some even more light onto this company when the drill down continues. The drill down is brought to you by Era. With Era, give yourself an information advantage. Connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's Era, A I E R A dot com. And you can listen to the drill down on your Alexa smart speaker by saying, Hey, Alexa. Play the Drill Down podcast, and you'll hear our latest show. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at Drill Down Pod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. All right, we are back with the Drill Down Bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. It is, of course, about Hive blockchain technologies. And yes, we mentioned that this company uh, creates... Ether tokens, it creates Bitcoin tokens. How many, and HODLs, holds on for dear life. How many are they HODLing? Well, the end of August, and here's that number, the company says it is holding, HODLing, holding on for dear life. They literally use the term Isaac HODL in their investor presentations, H-O-D-L, all caps. They currently HODL 1,030 Bitcoin tokens, um, at least at the end of August. That was the number. We'll look for quarterly results to find out how much they have now. Wow, that's a lot of money. Yeah, increasingly, with the recent surge uh, in both um, the price of uh, BTC, Bitcoin, and Ethereum, ETH, ETH. All right, that's it. You've been listening to Drill and Podcast. We're grateful for that. Oh, so grateful. Corey Johnson. Isaac Webster is our executive editor. No, you're not. You're executive producer. Mm -hmm. If I could read the script that I write... <laughs> We'd have different sounding show. We do have an editor extraordinaire in Ben Wilson, and we're grateful for that too. The Drill Down is a production of the Business Podcast Network. We, we love you, Bitcoin. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>